With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Exit discussion group call for tackle sovereignty. We are going over some legal research, just going over the basics for people, things that nobody's taught in school, they should have been taught. And uh, to the convenience of the system, you were not taught. And this evening, we're going to go over. Um, three basic things. Uh, first is going to be the IRAC method, and kind of list those off, and uh, let Jeremy go into more detail on, on those. Um, and at the same time, the reason why I'm showing these three things together this evening is because I want people to realize that you know they all go together, and these are things that we should be watching for, things we should be paying attention to when we're looking at a case and whether we're reading it or it's an affidavit we're looking at that somebody else wrote anything like that first looking at a situation in general and being able to realize you know what we've got to pay attention to this is primarily um, adjusting how you think which is the biggest obstacle that people have because people want to put their emotions into the situation and you know i talk about it's all about how they feel oh this is criminal not you've got to be able to release all that and look at things from a blank slate and be able to just look at the details of what's happening and be able to combine them together and like i said i'm showing these three things together this evening because they all relate to each other um, iraqing a case directly relates to what they look for with the elements of a crime. And those things directly also relate to how you are going to compose an affidavit if you need to write an affidavit for some reason. So how are you doing tonight, Jeremy? I'm doing rather well. Thanks for having me So cool. um, we have Iraq method and we have how to write affidavits and uh, stuff like that today. Yeah. Um, do you want me to just simplify Iraq really quick so people can understand it? Well, I figured I'll go through um, what Iraq stands for and let you tackle each of those uh, four items. Okay, go ahead. All right, so Iraq. Iraq is I-R-A-C, and there's going to be information for this as well as other information down in the description box here on YouTube as well. So you can go back and review this. But IRAC is I-R-A-C, which stands for I is issue, the R is rule, the A is application, some people say analysis, and the C is conclusion. So, Jeremy, I want to start out there, I guess, with issue. Okay. Issue is uh, identifying the legal issue or questions that need to be addressed. It should be framed as a specific problem be solved. Uh, the rule is the state to applicable rule or principle that will be used to analyze your issue. Uh, this could be a statute, a case law, or a legal doctrine. Uh, application, apply the rule to the facts of your case. 
analyze how the rule should be interpreted and how it applies to the specific situation you're arguing. Use logic and reasoning to explain your analysis. Uh, a conclusion is to provide a concise conclusion that directly answers the legal issue. Uh, summarize your key points for your um, analysis and clearly state the outcome of your resolution. I'm going to put this language inside of the chat so people could copy it and paste it if they need it for future uh, reference here. One second. All right. Yeah, that sounds excellent. And yes, that directly lines up with what I have as well as for what an IRAC is. And so these are the things you're kind of keeping in mind when you're reading through a case. No, there's, also, there's also other um, ways to do stuff too. There is the crack method, and the crack method is a different one, and it's actually pretty strong. It is conclusion, issue, conclusion, rule, application, conclusion. Basically, you're you're putting your conclusion first, so they can come to see what you're trying to ask for. Um, it's usually a one sentence answer to a legal problem to prompt the court. Uh, it makes it so you have uh, to state the legal rule or principle that is relevant to the problem or, or problem. Um, this this maybe specific statute or case law that establishes principle same with the Iraq method uh, the application starting with the rule apply uh, it to set facts related to the legal problem uh, think about how the rule or facts apply and use your reasoning um, and analytical skills to explain your analysis and then finally conclude by restating your original conclusion and summarizing it from there right here I'll give you um, an example again and I'll post this again in the chat here so people can see the crack method. Yeah. Now, these methods, whether it's the Iraq method or the crack method, sorry, I kind of laugh when I hear that one all the time. But yeah, let me coach this so you comprehend uh, how these are really used. Yeah, these are generally most really used in schooling for uh, paralegal or for law school, and it, it's generally for writing. Uh, to show you how to put something together, how to write something out. But what it's also doing at the same time, it's exercising your mind as to what to look for, uh, the, the key things that you should be seeing pop out at you when you're going over material. And, I, you know, so there's so much really to rewiring the mind in many different facets of life. I mean... Uh, I, I've mentioned before, I couldn't stand math when I was in school, right? I don't know, what did I end up doing? Uh, going into casino work, working table games. And, uh, you know, you go get, for instance, on a roulette table, and you might have four, five, six different payoffs for one single bet. You know, you might have a 35 to 1, 11 to 1, 8 to 1, uh, 3 to 1, and, and you've got to add all those together, pay them all off at the same time. And I was like, wow. But I quickly learned when I was doing that, it was just a matter of rewiring your brain and changing the way you think. And that's what this is doing. Absolutely. 
it makes it so you can make your arguments clear and concise without having to um, have any like weak writing. Um, it's so important to understand that you have to get your arguments well articulated so other people can read them. That's why it's so important to have third person perspective and feedback on your writing as well. Yeah, absolutely. And so much of this, you have to realize kind of what you are doing. What you're really kind of doing is you are trying to get into maybe the mind of the reader or whoever you're arguing with and get them to see the story as you are presenting it to them. Absolutely. Um, at the same time, I mentioned um, elements of a crime because this is very applicable as well, elements of a crime. Um, but we know that they don't always pick the people with the highest IQ score or whatever to become a Leo. Uh, but a number of those people as well, if they're serious about getting into the occupation they're doing, if they're serious about it, they will have at least taken maybe a year in law school before going to police academy or something like that. So th this is kind of the thinking and the logic that hopefully if they're good at what they're doing, that they're going to be following as well. Because when they're looking at a criminal action or what could be construed as a criminal action, they've got to put the same logic of thinking into their examination of the case. Because there's basically four basic elements to a crime that have to exist. One, there has to be legal prohibition. Two, mens rea. Three, actus reus. And four, causation. And if you look into those and study those, you're going to find, wow, they, they really kind of fit right in with the Iraq of the crack method as well. Did you want to go over some of those elements, Jeremy? Um, well, I, I can. I was just trying to uh, write something here else. All right, no, go ahead. Keep, keep writing, and I'll, I'll run through them, and then you can add what you want to it as well. Uh, but number one, if you're looking at legal prohibition, number one, you're going to say, okay, is there a law? Does a law exist regarding the action that took place? Um, this is very similar to issue in, in the Iraq method. Um, you're looking to see for you know a legal activity that attaches to what is being brought up. Um, number two is mens rea. You're looking at a mental state. There has to be intent, mental intent, and a desire and a knowledge of committing the crime. Uh, number three is actus reus. Uh, this closely relates to number one. It's an illegal act. Uh, does this act fit into an illegal activity? And number four would be causation, which would line up also directly with inclusion in the Iraq method where you're looking to see if your overall analysis all conforms to the question of the law being broken and and what was the result, the causation, what was, what was the end result? Um, because if somebody's going to actually commit an illegal activity, you know, if they can a verb, an action, 
Well, for every action, there's a reaction, right? At a principle. So there's going to be a result that comes from, there's going to be a causation that results from that activity. Yes. Um, you basically have to prove that there is intent. You have to prove that they knowingly did it. Um, and this is a whole aspect of mens rea and actus reus. And then um, once you've established that, you can move for intent and 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 make your argument on the basis of what you're trying to argue on the issue. And the reason why Jeremy is here is because he has way more hands-on experience, way, way more hands-on experience with dealing with these things in a live setting than I necessarily do. Although I think a lot of these things can also just be applied to our basic lives as well. And uh, the way uh, we weigh things, the way we perceive things, this has a lot to do with our perception. And I think one of the biggest things that the system is trying to do today is muddy people's perception. Um, especially like using phrases like your truth or my truth. They're really trying to gray this area of perception. And like I said, that the schools don't teach you how to think. They don't teach critical thinking uh, because that would be dangerous to the system as a whole. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, I mean, it appears to uh, be a lot of people just don't understand the whole basics of the uh, framework of the of the litigation process. I mean, the first start, you start off, if you're in a criminal case, you're, you start with arraignment, and usually they're just looking for a couple of things. You're gonna look for your name, they're gonna look for your, um, your address, uh, you live in the state, and how you plead. Uh, those are usually the things that you're gonna go in, in the very beginning. And then after that, that activates the discovery process afterwards. In the discovery process, you have Literally, all of your rights can be invoked for um, your civil trial, you know, your, um, your trial rights. And because of that, you're allowed to ask for certain things based on your rights. Because you have a right to confrontation, so you can ask for like, you know, you can, if you, if you could frame it right, you could ask them to pull the moon down and have them count rock by rock. Um, your discovery request if it's relevant and if it's material those are very very important things that you need to understand um the discovery process is where you're going to move to admit evidence or you're going to move to strike evidence it is the most crucial point in your um litigation uh to be able to win your trial if you don't put evidence in during the discovery process if you don't frame, um, you know, move to strike certain things or move to suppress certain things during the evidence evidentiary hearing, you'll find that you won't uh, be helping yourself when you go to trial because you didn't put any of that into evidence and so you won't be able to bring it up. It's very crucial to understand that as well. Um, so. The other aspect of it is, is after you get through the discovery process and you're ready to go to trial, um, you're, you're going to have a new 
angle of pretrial motions that you can move to have the case dismissed on based on the evidence that you brought forward. You can also go in and you can, um, you know, appeal certain issues if they have to by petition for review. Um, those are things that you have to do in the appellate court. I will strongly suggest that if you have never been in the appellate court, um, it, the mantra that I have heard is the appellate court is where the pro se litigants go to have their case die um, based on the fact that they don't understand the standards of review and they don't understand that they have to bring these up before trial for them to be able to hear this stuff. You'll read thousands of cases or maybe even tens of thousands of cases where a defendant has not brought up the proper objections before trial so they waive their objections um, there's only a couple of them that you cannot waive uh, the first one is failure to state an offense or failure to state a claim which relief can be granted and the other one is um, based on subject matter jurisdiction these are the uh, ones that you cannot waive but anything else can can be waived you have um, to understand that notice in the very beginning um, can be waived. Uh, you can also have civil motions um, saying they served you. If you don't, you know, bring that up. You can waive that too. There's um, once you waive your objections, it's just like going back is is really really uh, detrimental, and you kind of want to get it as it's coming. Um, just to make sure it doesn't, you know, ripen into some you know thought pattern that isn't going to work or isn't helping you with the judge. Um, the main thing that you're trying to do um, is try to get the case dismissed before trial based on a legal issue. If you're trying to bring up facts before trial, only the jury can look at that stuff. I think that a lot of people misunderstand that. So they'll file motions that the court would, would say, hey, the jury can look at that. Hey, the jury can look at that. And um, those are some of the issues that people run into and because they don't understand the, um, they don't understand the framework of how that kind of looks. I think that um, once you understand that, you'll be able to make your objections properly underneath your uh, criminal rule 12. If it's, you know, modeled after the federal rules, you'll have uh, <coughs> criminal rule 12 which says you can bring up your proper objections before trial. And now this is also mirrored in the um, civil rules too. Uh, they have like 12 uh, B6 and all these other ones of failure to state a claim and all that stuff. Those are pretty much uh, a real, real easy way to pretty much lock in your uh, defenses to make it so you can get a favorable result. Um, we have a question here. Is that what we see here? The variance categorical pre-classification. Are you are you um, you're talking about two different examples of um, what is there like independent contractor and employee, and then there's um, classification for misdemeanors and felonies, and then there's uh, business activity constitutes investment contracts. Um, those are kind of a different categorical 
name of the principal's admissions. Are you talking about requests for admissions that you would ask to have the um, opposing party answer? I mean, because you can literally go in and have um, them ask, ask certain questions. If you're in a civil case, you can do a request for admissions. In a criminal case, it's going to be, based on my experience um, and what I see, it's a written deposition. And you write written deposition questions to kind of get them to um, clear up any gray area on a subject that you're trying to talk about. Those are um, offensive tools that you can use um, in, the, in the criminal aspect and in the civil cases. It, it'll make it uh, really interesting, but at the same time, you got to understand the request for admissions or the deposition questions. Those are all um, dispositive discovery motions because you're basically trying to make the other party, the other side, agree to the facts that you're claiming that they have committed. And usually, if your arguments are they're violating the law or something like that, you could almost issue or you could request the court that if they don't answer this stuff, that a bench warrant would be issued. Based on the fact that you have a right to make a civil arrest if it is a felony that they have committed. So there's a lot of things that you can do with your rights. You have to learn how to activate your rights correctly. And so you don't sound like a crazy person in there. Um, but at the same time, as long as you're using the rules, and your statutory remedies and your constitutional safeguards, um, and you're arguing it correctly, the judge should probably see that you um, are adamantly trying to defend yourself, and, and um, you might get some rulings in your favor. I'm not going to say all the time, but I will say that some of the time you will get rulings against you that you might have to challenge or reconsider or whatever, or challenge the the um, objection or, or make an objection to the judge's ruling after they made a motion for reconsideration. You can do all that under Rule 12, I mean, because you have a right to keep court trial. Um, I would say your framework for getting you set up to winning your trial is crucial in the discovery process to admit evidence or exclude evidence or to suppress evidence. Um, those are just so so important and if you just right, try to race to trial all the time you could be either somebody may have overlooked something and you let that in so when you go into trial you can instantly because of that overlooking that could be your demise and why you get convicted on some charge that is actually it could be either mischaracterized or it could be misleading or it could be just completely false and because you didn't challenge it in the discovery process, you have to deal with it on cross-examination. And it just makes you t makes you look in a bad light or in a shady light, and you didn't address it, so now you uh, have to answer that question. Those are the type of traps that these um, you'll find as well. The other thing that you got to understand is whenever you're making really strong motions, and you're making strong motions that are basically trying to knock the case out as fast as possible you have to be very careful that you're not absolutely freaking the prosecutor out to make it to where they're going to try to move to motion lamene all your stuff and when they motion lamene all your stuff they're making it so you can't bring up any of this stuff at trial 
And uh, they do that on purpose, like right before you go to trial, just so you can't do this stuff. So you have to make sure that you're very, very, very precise, very, very articulate. articulate. So whenever this stuff comes in, they can't go and try to do that stuff to you. Is there anything else you want to cover, Mo? Um, well, actually, I was going to say, it reminded me of something I read a long, long time ago that Abraham Lincoln had written, and he made the statement, he said, if it's not raised, it's laid. And that's a, just a very basic description of exactly what you covered there. Uh, you know, certain things, if they're not brought up, then guess what? They're set in stone. There's nothing you can do about it later on. The term is called waving your objections. I would tell you, write that down and make sure that you understand that you never do that. Waving your objections is the worst thing you can do because it totally makes it so you can't appeal nothing. Yeah, and that's the last thing you want to do. You, you don't want to hamstring yourself in a situation like that. You definitely become your Achilles heel. And, you know, and going through as well, like, you know, the elements of the crime and uh, Iraq and a case. Th this can be seen as well when you're looking at writing the affidavit. Because like the statement you made last week, Jeremy, that out of the facts arise the case. So if you don't present this info, if you don't get this out there, then you don't have anything to formulate the case around. Yeah, that's that's absolutely the, the key. The, the thing is, if your facts are, are your basis for them to rule, if you don't have any basis them to rule you're just wasting the court's time and they'll see it as frivolous and um that's not where you're trying to go um at this time i guess also jeremy why don't we mention um things such as uh pseudo law <laughs> uh things that sound like they're legitimate you know and you might read it online we all yeah i can use that in my case but it's not really law it, it's um, a legal fallacy, they call it. And if any of those get included in any of your material, um, you've, yeah, you've kind of screwed the pooch there. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's certain things. Um, I've noticed that if you start making uh, certain arguments, what, they, what they're stressing is if you start using um, religious dogma or UCC-style to make your arguments, and you're basically showing that you don't know what the heck you're doing, and it would be best for you to have an attorney. And they'll pull you right to speak. Yeah. You, you want to be able to. You want to be able to speak the law, and you want to be able to defend yourself adamantly and vehemently. And the only way that you can really do that most of the time is defending yourself based on the fact that you know your fact patterns. But you're always going to find the crux of. Or what does the law mean? How does it apply to this situ situation and stuff like that? And that's why I would say, you know, reach out to people that um, have been attorneys or, you know, that have active access to this type of stuff or been able to um, work in this area so they can expand and give you answers in this type of um, in this type of situation. These are very, very crucial things that you need to understand so you can obtain the victory that you want without having to spend millions of dollars sometimes in the process. And that's why I would say that 
it's best for you to learn the law and learn how to and learn what your rights are, and how to use your rights, and how to act them in court properly, so you don't have to pay for a thousand attorneys to follow you around all the time. Yeah, something you brought up there, Jeremy, uh, reminds me of a couple things that I see talked about and argued quite a bit. That let's see if you'll address for us, and that is uh, one. Uh, we've got people like BB Bacchus out there that's saying that everything that's going on in court is all based on the UCC. It's all commercial. It's all UCC. And then you also hear people uh, talk about, no, they say these are all administrative courts. You know, now these are not de jure courts. They're all administrative. Uh, do you want to tackle those two topics? Okay, well, the situation, there's these franchises and they have these charters that go along. And then some of these charters will get... Um, a certain basis to be able to represent and take production of like the legal process and stuff like that. Some of those franchises are administrative, but at the same time, they have, and they're in some respect, they're a corporation that has taken on the duty to do what your state is trying to provide for the people. Um, in some respects, some of those arguments are correct, but that argument isn't going to be something that you're going to be able to bring into the court. To be able to attack your franchise, you've got to be able to do that a different way. Um, the aspect of the franchise, you've got to show that they're violating people's rights and stuff like that to be able to revoke the franchise. And going it through the court to have them rule on that issue is probably not the smartest thing to do because, you know, why would you want somebody to rule on the issue that they're dealing with? So you'd have to go somewhere else to be able to deal with those things. I noticed that people do like to bring this stuff up in the lower court. Um, but when they do that, it's kind of like, um, it, it's a non-issue for them in, in a lot of regards because it's not something that they can handle. It's something that their um, superiors have to deal with because it's their franchise in which they've got um, to be able to operate under. Uh, you have um, a lot of this contract law and stuff that they're operating in, but that doesn't really pertain um, to you as long as you can, but unless you can show that you're a party to the agreement. You can do um, an attack on the, on the franchise, but the thing is you have to show that they literally um, are breaching the contract that they have and they have signed. I would say it, those, are, those are some interesting things that you could research if you like went into um, Dun and Bradstreet and all this other stuff and you try to get all this information, you'll be able to find uh, that, yeah, yeah, some of these people aren't the state. They actually are um, basically a franchise working as a corporation for that, um, before the state to be able to offer that service. Granted, they are not, um, they're not like the state because they're, they're a corporation doing that, that service for the state. However, um, they do have the ability to act in that capacity based on the, um, the agreement that they have in place. So I would say in that respect, yeah, some things do apply. However, they're not going to apply your case the way you want it to work. You want them to deal with the issue or deal with the issues at hand involved in your case that are materially relevant. Uh, if you wanted to do something about the franchise, you'd probably want to do that politically and, uh, and while you were engaging in trying to do your civic duty in either the Republic of 
Party or Democratic Party. I wouldn't really try to join a third party uh, because they have really nobody in office that represents them. So even if you were to win a plank in the platform, it was like, who's going to win to go and represent those views for the Libertarian Party or the Constitutional Party, Alaska Independence Party, or the Independence Party in general, or whatever state Independence Party you have. Those are, those are some of the things that I've ran into from experience. I've walked into a lot of different things and seen that, you know, there's a, just a, there's groups together. They have brilliant minds. They're, they're totally on point. However, they're in the wrong place, and they need to be in the place where they can actually fix it and be effective. And uh, I believe that when you're joining these third parties and they don't have anybody to actually represent them in Congress or in the state, you're kind of not doing yourself any favors. And I'm just saying that from my own personal experience um, from being involved in it. Yeah. If you want to argue that they're, you know, let's say a UCC franchise of the state or, you know, they're, they're a corporation and, you know, they're not de jure government or whatever, those would be focus points of a case. But they're not focus points of your case. Those would have to be brought up in a totally... Uh, separate manner that would focus on those situations alone. <clears throat> Otherwise, they're not anything that's really going to help your case out. Yeah. You always want to focus on what's materially relevant. Unless you've got a collateral attack that will help you. But the thing is, is you want to make sure that most of the time, uh, like as I was trained by this one guy that he had one over 600 murder cases, I guess. Now, I don't know if it was fully murder cases, but... The way he was explaining it to me, yeah, there was a lot of murder cases that he was a part of. What he told me was the most effective. Oh, either I lost your audio, Jeremy, or you cut out. So, yep. Okay, he'll bounce back on with us here shortly <laughs> uh you gotta love technology right? Yeah, here. right all right he's back with us what i was saying was is one of the guys that i had met that had one over 600 cases i don't know if it was all murder cases but the way he had explained it to me was you never want to go around the issue you want to go straight through it so they'll never bring it back up and i believe that that is absolutely the most effective method that i have seen in winning is to just go straight through their allegations and just eviscerate them. And then whenever they try to come back at you again, they'll realize, yeah, I don't want to argue that again because see what he did last time. So those are the, the effective strategies that I've learned from really successful lawyers. All right. Well, we've got your connection here, Jeremy. Uh, since we had mentioned going over an affidavit, um, how about if we briefly go over the format of an affidavit, because I've seen lots of them out there. And I think that this is like a number one stumbling block to people. Uh, number one, they got to realize you can't just send an affidavit to anybody. You, you need to have either this is something that's going to initiate a case or it's part of a case. Yeah. All right. And because that, that's what generally will happen. Like if a police officer arrests somebody, um, for a crime, you know, they caught them in the offense, whatever the case may be, what they will do is they will go and they'll write an affidavit regarding the events that occurred. That gets submitted um, to the attorney's office for, for the county, and they decide whether or not if there is enough 
information here. They're going to sit and they're going to Iraq what he's wrote. And if everything there will build a case, then they will go and they will file charges on someone. That's the most common place I think the affidavits are used at. But we can also read them ourselves. So you want to go over an affidavit with us, Jeremy? Yeah, writing an affidavit is pretty simple. Um, it, it basically, you identify the affidavit's purpose, determine why you need to create this affidavit. This will help you um, gather the necessary information to include in the, your, your, your affidavit. Uh, the title and the introduction um, begin with identifying the document as the affidavit that includes such title as affidavit of your name. Then um, introduce or your introduction include your personal details, full name, address, occupation, um, this, and, and the state that you're making the affidavit under oath in. Um, your statement of facts clearly and concisely state the facts relevant to your affidavit. Organize the information into paragraphs, each addressing each specific topic or event that you're trying to cover. Remember to present the facts and not your opinions because you have to prove these things. Don't put your opinions in there. Um, sign and date it. Uh, conclude your affidavit by um, signing or dating it at the bottom, depending on the jurisdiction. You may also need to have a witness um, signature or to have it notarized. Uh, your notary or witness, some jurisdictions require that an affidavit be signed in the presence of a notary public or a witness. Uh, you can check your local rules to determine the specific requirements for your jurisdiction. Um, attachments, if there's any supporting documents or evidence that substantiates your claim, um, attach them to your affidavit to make sure uh, to number them and, la and label them with clarity. Um, and uh, review and revise. Um, before finalizing your affidavit, review it care carefully um, and the accuracy and the um, clarity and coherence. Basically, I would say... If you've got a rough draft, rewrite it seven times just to be safe. I'm not going to tell you to file your rough draft. I mean, that is a vital error. Oh, my gosh. You want to make sure that you read it at least seven times after you do it the first time to make sure that it's absolutely what you're trying to put in, everything that you're trying to cover without any any error whatsoever at all just because all of that is going to be signed under penalty of perjury and it's there to support your affidavit uh in a conclusive fashion with uh definitive certainty yep and like i said um you know it starts out with the title you know regarding whether it's name or uh, an event that occurred and i've find it interesting because you mentioned something a little bit ago jeremy as far as the beginning of a court of a court case one of the things that occurs and this coincides also with this opening statement in the affidavit where you're providing you know your name uh where you live your age you're providing your details what's happening there is you are establishing jurisdiction showing that you have the right and ability to speak on this matter just like you had mentioned, Jeremy, in the court case, they're going to be going through that information in the very beginning because that's what's happening there. It's establishing jurisdiction. 
Absolutely. Well, the jurisdiction really, I mean, sometimes people don't understand this, and this is a really, really, um, I guess it's kind of fuzzy for some people. There's a difference between personal jurisdiction and subject matter jurisdiction. Personal jurisdiction is based on you living in the state, you living in their jurisdictional uh, venue. Um, as long as they can prove that, then they have the ability to hear the case. That's what that is. Subject matter means that they violated some law or whatever, so they don't have the ability to hear subject matter jurisdiction. No, they're totally two different things. Don't ever confuse them. Yep, and uh, Jerry mentioned, you know, rewriting the affidavit. I, I would suggest as, as well, you know, the best affidavits I've seen, they're a one-pager, all right, with maybe five, six paragraphs within it. And like I said, each of those paragraphs, you number those. And if you've got an exhibit that goes with that paragraph as evidence to back up that paragraph of what you wrote, you list that in your exhibits and uh, you uh, title those alphabetically, you know, A, B, C. But at the end of that paragraph, you will say, for instance, uh, please see exhibit A, you know, in bold letters. And, and also have somebody that knows nothing about the situation whatsoever, have them read your affidavit and then tell you back what it's about, what has occurred, to see if you've conveyed the message well enough. I think that's pretty good advice, I think. One of the things that you I want to stress, though, as the defendant in a court case, everything that you say will not be heard by the court. So if you're writing affidavits, I, I want to make sure that you, I want to stress this, and this is something I've learned from my own failures, okay? You want to make sure that you put evidence in to collaborate your statements inside of your affidavit. As long as you do that, it's not you saying it, it's the evidence saying it. You're just pointing them in the direction of the evidence so they can see it themselves, so they can come to the same conclusion that you're trying to make. If you do not do that, it could be a massive oversight on your part. Exactly. It's the supporting evidence of the facts. And like you said before, out of the facts arise the case. Mm -hmm. Because anybody can just claim anything you want. People claim things all day long, but it doesn't mean it's true. You know what I mean? So you're putting claims out there. So if you're putting claims out there, you also hold liability to show evidence of those claims. That's what they want to see. Another way that you would do that is there's certain things in um, discovery. You can test the truthfulness and veracity of people's statements. You can see if they have inconsistent statements or contradictory statements or if they made false statements or falsehoods. Um, as long as you can dictate that or which one of them it is, uh, you can usually move to impeach um, a witness based on the fact that they have committed one of those issues. And if they lack veridical statements in their testimony um, because their statements are not voracious you're going to find that they really um, have made false statements because they're not supported by the evidence and they're not supported by um, what they've said prior or, or whatever it is that you're 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 confronting them on and um, 
I will uh, stress that when you are, um, and I think this is something a lot of people just need to understand. Whenever you're cross-examining um, a witness and you caught them in a lie and they've committed the lie in front of you, you literally have the right to request the court to, um, uh, you basically, you're requesting the court to make a civil arrest based on the fact that the felony has been committed in front of you. Um, and the, the aspect that they've just done this in front of you uh, is really the culmination of a show cause hearing, which is really what you have to do after you've asked for a civil arrest. Well, once you've got them to answer it right there in the hearing and you've got them caught in their lie, you can move for the civil arrest based on the felony that has just been identified. Yep, correct. I, I remember I posted something several weeks ago where I said, you know, if you came home and saw that, you know, somebody broke into your house or something like that, would you put the statement in an affidavit that um, you've been robbed? And only one person actually got the answer to that one right. But the answer would be no for a couple reasons. One, you're, like Jeremy brought up conclusory statements, you're making a conclusory statement. Okay, by saying that you were robbed. Now, what you want to show is evidence that, okay, I came home, uh, a window was broke, or I, the door was jimmied open, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, certain items had, were missing from the house, had been taken from the home. And technically, the correct term would be burglarized, really, because being robbed would mean you've been held up at gunpoint, right? But either way, you're making a conclusionary statement and what, what you're doing is you're saying actually what you want them to come to the conclusion and find from your affidavit and the supporting evidence. You want them to then conclude, yes, they've been burglarized. Yeah. Well, you want, you want to be able to write it out, articulate, you know, like I came home, I saw this, this is what the damage to the house and kind of occurred. Uh, and then you can see that you're trying to lay out and just make sure that they kind of get it. The thing is, is there's a common rule when you're writing affidavits and it is nothing is obvious. So don't ever assume that they're just going to figure it out. Explain it so they can figure it out. That's the key. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I think last week, what you're doing is you're showing a story. You're trying to tell a story. And you want them to be able to get their mind wrapped around what you're trying to show them as well as possible. Because you, like he said, like Jeremy said, you know, nothing is obvious. You have to realize whoever is reading this knows absolutely nothing about the situation. That's so important to understand. You try to make one. And the other thing that I've noticed, and I've learned this from really good attorneys on the East Coast. I, from what I've experienced, they're really good attorneys are on the East Coast and then the bullies are on the West Coast. I, I don't know if I could totally confirm that, but that's kind of been the uh, what I've heard. Uh, the, what, what, it, it's just interesting how, how, how that has been said many different times. But I've noticed that uh, the writing styles are pretty significant. And you'll find that there's a lot of heavy hitting arguments inside of the um, and the East Coast arguments that you'll see when you're reading their briefs. You want to, and 
I kind of lost what I was about to say, but. Um, oh, you're yeah. talking about writing, writing style between uh, East Coast and the left coast. It was just made me think of, you know, if you look at requirements, like for instance, for law school, if you're taking law school in Delaware, um, the requirements I think are 10 or 15 points lower actually than they are for California. There also um, seems to be like an intern program where you can get, you can work underneath an attorney for a certain amount of time and you can go and take the bar underneath their uh, stuff and it's called an apprenticeship. I'm still wondering if we can get people to go into, like they've done in Utah, uh, where they've made it so pro se litigants that can start practicing law in some fields. I, th I really like that idea because it gives the lawyers some competition against their own assistants that they used to employ. I think that's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be very interesting. Yeah. Well, I think we've packed a ton of info <laughs> into um, this short hour this evening. I don't even think we've hit an hour yet, but I think we've packed a bunch of info in here that is not the typical things that you hear in social media and other people espouse and try and charge you money for. So, is there anything else you wanted to add this evening, Jeremy? I would say if you're gonna do legal research, try to find, do fine law, use the STIA, use Google Scholar, really read your cases um, really thoroughly. Make sure you understand the holdings don't just cite case law, cite the holdings on how they applied the rule and why they ruled the way they did. As long as you can do that, you'll be able to get your argument for your uh, rule for your IRAC method. And then you'll be able to analyze it pretty I mean, pretty easily after that based off of that facts. Um, I would say if you're trying to learn any type of writing style, there is a guy that's on the um, YouTube. He has... Um, he, he has a, what is it, I guess he's scored really high on the LSAT, and he is like a, he has, he's studied philosophy, and he's also studied the bar, so basically he's using philosophy to make it so you can understand what it's, what's going on there, and uh, that is going to be a link on YouTube known as um, LSAT, Introduction to the LSAT, and it's going to be on the channel of Insight. I would tell you that this man is brilliant. I would say take as many um, as many uh, points and practice his little things that he's doing to show you how to Iraq and show you how to frame your arguments and break it down into different parts and cover every every issue. He is a master when I out of most of the people that I have seen uh, writing, and um, he's very encouraging to learn from, to say the least. Yes, I've listened to a lot of his info. I should probably throw a link for him down in the description box as well. But, yeah, definitely very excellent information that comes from him. And for people that don't know what an LSAT is, um, if you want to go to a good law school, for instance, if you're really looking to do something with this, you aren't going to be like somebody that says, you know, um, I want to be a great mechanic, so I'm, I'm just going to go to school for it, or I want to be a dentist, so I'm just going to go to school for it. You know, if you want to get into a good school, you're going to go through an LSAT program. And that kind of weeds people out. 
uh, so that they don't get bogged down with um, people in law school that are just kind of a drag on the class. You know what I mean? So, and the LSAT tests are interesting to look at. One of the things that I thought was really surprising that you're when you're taking the bar exam is they'll give you these questions, right? Now, granted, the questions um, don't necessarily have to be answered correctly. You just have to make an argument. Now, that blew my mind. I was like, wait a second. They don't have to be correct and they can still pass the test? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I would have loved to have done that in the insurance game. I mean, you have to get like an 85% to be able to pass the test. So being able to not be correct but be able to frame an argument, that's that's pretty fantastic. But, no, that's really the game. It's all about can you um, BS the BSer, I guess. And that's yeah. kind of what I see here with their, with their strategies and, and, and employment of their arguments. Yeah. They're teaching you the magic of twisting the language to get what you want. Yeah, and I think that it's important for us to be able to recognize those mischaracterizations, mis mischaracterizations and the attempts to say something that isn't what it is. Because when you think about it, if somebody comes in and they say something and it's a false statement, that is, that's completely a violation of the professional code of conduct. The other thing is, is it's a violation of the law based on the fact that they usually they'll swear to it in a filing when they file when they file the document. Um, that right there is pretty um, horrifying too. But at the same time, while you've got the false statement, you also got the other one, which is evidence tampering. So you've got two criminal acts involved in one pleading just by making a false statement and having that false statement be something that makes it it's going to affect the outcome of the proceeding in the court case uh, based on their filing and it's not true absolutely yeah you want to be able to uh, you know kind of use the kung fu method and, and you know use their own weight and force against themselves and let, let them bury themselves and, and that's what's important about wrapping your mind around the IRAC method or the crack method and comprehending the elements of a crime, knowing what to look for and see if they're being applied correctly. And that's how you spot this stuff, which is essential. When you're IRACing, I want you to understand there's a method that you want to use. And the method is write your arguments clear and concise, tie all points together, spell out the inferences in the affirmative, with definitive certainty. If you do that, there will be no room for doubt. Your argument will be ironclad. Yeah, I think um, negative averment is important when you're writing things out. And I heard, I heard an attorney talk one time and he was saying that the court is a lot like your subconscious. Your subconscious doesn't recognize the negatives or the knots or the nose, whatever, um, it only recognizes the positives. So if you can use a negative averment for something, which what you're showing, you're showing something negative in a positive way. It's just all how you frame the statement. So um, if, if, you know, you were to say you're accused of 
uh, for instance, having a weapon on you. You're not going to say, I did not have XYZ weapon on me. You would say, I was without the possession of a weapon. That would be a negative averment, mm-hmm. according well, to my understanding. From what I'm seeing is it's actually kind of an affirmative defense. You'll have an affirmative defense for each one. And basically, you want to be able to find out what those are. And then if you can argue them in a, as a negative impairment, you can basically argue that they, they don't have a, a case through the negative. Well, this has been a ton of info this evening, Jeremy. Thanks for being here, brother. All right, brother. And uh, we'll catch you all next Sunday evening. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.